Welcome to Life on the Illinois Prairie. Your host is Wendy Fleming Dexter, and after 30 years living in small town Illinois, she has stories to tell. Past cornfields and factories, into the heart of Amish country. There's more here than what meets the eye, far beyond what you think you know. So buckle up and stay tuned. This is Life on the Illinois Prairie. Welcome to Life on the Illinois Prairie. I am your host, Wendy Fleming Dexter, and I'm so delighted if you've stopped by today. This season is about the Illinois Arthur, Illinois Amish, and I live at the southern tip. I'm in the northern tip of Coles County, which is in east central Illinois, and I'm at the southern tip of the Amish community, the Arthur Amish community. Joining us today, I'm very happy to have a gentleman who is very knowledgeable about the Amish, Troy Kaufman. Troy, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so happy that you've agreed to come on today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Uh, could you tell a little bit uh, about your history, your interest in the Amish, and were you were you actually born Amish, or were you born Mennonite, or what is your connection sure. to the Amish community? Well, okay. My Dad was Amish until he was, I think, around 14 years old when um, they left the church and joined a conservative Mennonite church. So at some point in our life, uh, I realized that um, Dad started getting interested in his uh, history, our heritage, and we started going on trips to collect some genealogy materials and look at sites and I thought that was kind of fun. And then I connected with a, a group called SAGA, Swiss Anabaptist Genealogical Association. Um, and, and this group hosts database databases from genealogists. We have some databases with um, getting close to a million individuals in them apiece. And we host those on the web so that you can go and, and uh, search those. And if you're a member, then you can... You can search living people, too, in those databases. So this was a couple decades ago, I guess, that um, I discovered my genealogy on there. And I printed it out, and I said, hey, Dad, look at this. This is all of our ancestors here. And he was delighted. So then I joined that group, and I became the chair, which basically most of what I do is chair our annual meetings, uh, which is the other thing that our group does. Uh, we have annual meetings, and we we have them in in sites of uh, historical interest for the Amish and, and Mennonites. Oh. So, um, and then I alluded to the the uh, Swiss Anabaptist genealogy, and I'll I'll say more about that later. So, I have um, I don't know how many how many books. I mean, dozens and dozens, maybe well over hundred books. Lots of periodicals. I I collect them. And uh, to do reading and research, not as much as I should, but um, I have a pretty good background of them. Mm. And I like, uh, I've lived, all of my neighbors but one are Amish. I live in about in the middle of the of the Amish community, or maybe on the, the eastern edge of it, mm -hmm. uh, about three miles from Arthur. Arkle, I mean. Mm. I probably cruise by your house, but I'm not taking pictures, I bet. <laughs> Probably so. That's right. Yeah. So uh, did you attend? 
I didn't. I did not. You did not attend Amish school. You went to public school then? Yeah, I went to a public school. But my grandpa was the superintendent of, of a Mennonite Bible school. And so oh. during the summer, I would go to this conservative Mennonite Bible school. And um, a lot of the, I, I guess, the theology, the Mennonite Anabaptist theology kind of uh, crept into my religious DNA, if you will. I didn't really even know that and how different it was until later on when I was a member of some conventional churches. And um, I think I I gave a, a sermon once as I was an elder. I gave a sermon on turning the other cheek and loving your enemies, which did not resonate very well with folks. <laughs> and then I realized I'd not really heard a, a sermon like that before. And it's a fairly, um, pe- you know, peculiar to Amish and Mennonites or, or, you know, something that they stress and believe very strongly in. And I guess it kind of seeped into some of my beliefs too. So uh, I, I really, I really like a lot of the, the philosophies and behind the, the Mennonite faith at Amish. Hmm. So you were telling me uh, one time th- that we spoke about, and I wasn't aware that different Amish names, Amish families came from different, Backgrounds. I believe you said some came from Switzerland and some came from Germany. Is that correct? That's right. And so one one reference I'm looking at right now is a humongous book called Amish and Amish Mennonite Genealogies. It's by a pair of people called um, Rachel Kreider and Hugh Gingrich. And this hmm. is like, this is one of the most famous uh, Amish genealogical books that you can find. It just it's just huge, and it has pretty much all of the the genealogies of all these families that came over. And so, I'm, I'm, if I reference this thing here, what they're what uh, is talking about here is uh, the first large immigration period, which is 18th uh, century, from about 1727 to 1770, was the first wave of immigration. And they came from Alsace-Lorraine, Montebilliard, Baden, Bavaria, Waldeck, Hesse-Darmstadt, and the Palatinate. And the the second one, let's see, I'm, I can't put my finger on that one. The second one came in the 1800s. And they came more from Germany, and I can't find where it says that right now. I would like to read the exact text if I had, if I could find it. But I can tell you some of the names and how different they are. So, from the 18th century, and this is 1727 to 1770, these are some of the local names that you see quite a bit. I'm going to omit some of the ones that are more in in other communities. We've got Beachy, Byler, Berkey, Bontrager, Plank, Detweiler. There's a few Detweilers around here. Gerber. There's a few around here. Hirschberger. Hooley or Holly, Hostetler, Kaufman, Keim, King, Kurtz, and there's I think there's some English kings too, but these are these are our um, Mennonite ones. Maybe there's not Mennonite kings around here. Kurtz, Lance, Lehman, Mast, Miller. I don't think there's many Rickenbacks around here, but um, <laughs> it's a famous name. Schrock. Mm. Let's see here, Spiker, Smucker, Seaver. Uh, Siever is also a German name. There's some 
actual German Seavers that live around here. Stoltzfus, Stutzman, Troyer, Weaver, Winger, Yoder, lots of Yogers, and Zuck or Zug. The 19th century immigration from 1815 to 1860. Did you have a question or would you like me to continue? Oh, no, please go ahead. Okay. So some of these names, the, there's, there's some overlap, like Berkey was also there. Yoder is also in this set. We have Bender, I think. Bender is a newer, a newer arrival. We have Chup, Diener, uh, Fisher, Fry, Gingrich, Helmuth. Let's see, I'm looking down through, I'm leaving a bunch out. Marnerer. There's Millers in there in this one too. There's Millers in both one, both of them. Nafziger, Mullet, Otto, Petersheim, uh, Roki, Schwinn. That's an interesting one. I don't know many Schwins on here, but there's lots of bikes. Did you see lots of bikes? Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, there's there's a, there's quite a few actual Mennonite names that you you know recognize from industry like Schmucker or Schmucker sure. or Smoker, Stucky, <laughs> uh, Swartz and Truber. Those are some of the ones that are there's Summer or Summer. So those were more um, those were more from Germany, and I wish I could I had my finger on this earlier here, but now I'm not finding it. Well, I might come back to that later, but. But it does say that the original immigration, the first, the first period of immigration was about 500 people. The second one was about 3,000 Amish people. So that kind of gives you an idea of the stock that came over um, hmm. that established all of these families. And and how is it? Do you know? Do you know why why they ended up in Pennsylvania? What was it about Pennsylvania that drew them, or how they got that was their landing? place i mean why they ended up why they're and to this day why there's so, so many of them still there well it's a very good question and the answer to it is they were being persecuted for their religion um and most countries were like that and many countries are still like that where there is a religion and if that's not your religion then you're not going to have an easy time of it in this particular case uh, the Amish and Mennonite were kind of hounded out of Switzerland and that general area, and they were pushed into into other areas uh, farther north. And they and some of my ancestors were actually uh, deported to Holland. And Holland tended to be more tolerant. They still are a fairly you know tolerant mm -hmm. country, but even there, they were not looked upon with favor. Um, and one of the big differences between the Amish and Mennonite and the other religions were that the Amish believed in adult baptism, which is not so controversial today, but back then that really shook people up and they didn't like that. So, mm -hmm. um, so they, they were persecuted and there's actually a book called the martyrs mirror that has all kinds of stories in it about the early Mennonites that were um, killed or, persecuted because of the religion. Uh, and if you'd like a, to, to hear about the split between the Mennonite and the Amish, I could talk about that at some time too. But in this particular case, they found themselves in Holland and they heard about this place called Pennsylvania established by William Penn. William Penn was a Quaker and they were 
based on Christianity, but they had some different uh, beliefs. They believed in following their inner light, and there's a bunch of other stuff. There, it's a pretty cool religion, I think. Uh, but they, William Penn said, you know, I, I, we need a space for people with different religions to go practice their faith. And the, Am- the Amish of Mennonite heard about that and said, hey, let's, you know, that sounds like our kind of place. So there's a lot of, um, and in fact, the culture in the Midwest um, stemming from you know, kind of a, from Pennsylvania tends to be more tolerant of different religions and different beliefs, things like that, than some other places. Hmm. So um, that's why that's why they came over. The Mennonites came over a little earlier than the Amish, I think around 1700 or so, maybe they started coming over. And then some, there's actually Kaufmans that lived in Lancaster, I think that were Mennonite first. Uh, and then the Amish started coming over around 1727 uh, or a little bit later. That, that was 1727 is kind of an outlier. I think more in the 1730s, they started coming in. They came into Philadelphia because that was a major port. I think some might've come through Baltimore. But you can see the migration pattern that they would they would have to go farther and farther away from Philadelphia to find land that had not already been claimed. So they ended up in what's now Berks County. At that time, it was still Lancaster County, but it was Berks County now. Um, and that's where they first settled. Hmm. So do you know how it is that the Schrock and Yoder families ended up in Arthur? How did that come about? Do you know? Well, so that is actually, um, it is the the constant search for new land. And what, what would happen is you would have families, Amish families, that would have lots of kids. And, and what I've found in looking at my own genealogy is it seemed like the older kids would you know, they would come of age to get married. There wasn't any more cheap land around to be had. And so they would be the people that would go off in search of more land, more, you know, cheap land, better land. Uh, for example, I think that some of the places where they were at, they would have to burn lime, especially uh, the ones, I think maybe in Somerset or Holmes County, they'd have to burn lime and mix it in with their ground to get decent performance. Hmm. And they they heard about Illinois being fertile, so mm-hmm. that's what they they were they were in search of some fertile land, and in fact, so you, when they started coming into Illinois, they started coming in from all around. There's all kinds of communities. I, what I've I've seen Somerset County, uh, Pennsylvania, Holmes County, Ohio. My ancestors came in from uh, North Dakota in from Iowa. Hmm. And you think, well, that's weird. It's out, you know, farther out west. But early on in Illinois history, Illinois, central Illinois was not a very nice place to live. In fact, it was kind of terrible. It was it was swampy. It was poorly drained. They really couldn't till the soil very well until they invented the um the sod busting plow. That was one thing that brought people to Illinois. And the other thing was drainage. So they kind of people kind of skipped over Illinois. Some of the hardier settlers, there was people here that kind of settled, I think early 18 or 1800s, but they, they, um, in fact, the town of Arcola used to be on the banks of the Kaskaskia. 
because back then river travel was one of the easiest ways to get around when the railroad went through then they they moved near the railroad and that's about the time they started draining the soil if you've ever seen the streams around there's there's like they look like streams around uh, central Illinois that have very straight banks and nothing on them. Those are dredge ditches where they would put a steam engine in the middle of a bog and they would dig their way to a river. And that's why they're so straight and kind of deep and it would drain those things. And then they would put in clay drainage tiles. That's fascinating. I, I always wondered about that. I'd seen that. I was curious about why that, why they looked the way they did because it just didn't make sense to me. Yep. Yeah. So, so once they discovered that once you drain this land and you, and you now had a plow, I think it was a John Deere plow, that you could till this earth with, and it was very good quality soil. You didn't have to fertilize it. Then people started flocking here, and the Amish then bought land from some of the original settlers and started farming it. And they came from all over the place. So, but these particular people, I believe, came from, let's see, I pulled out a name here out of the book. They came from Summit Mills, Pennsylvania. I think that was in Somerset. We had people from Holmes County. We had people, and like I said, one of my ancestors came later from North Dakota, but most of my Kaufman ancestors came from Iowa. And there was a lot of Amish over in in Iowa, like near Kelowna. Mm -hmm. So that's why, that's why they came here. Well, that's interesting, and the and the the uh, quest for land, not not original as settling of the land, but the settlements of Amish continue. I know when Wilmer Otto was on the first episode that we had, he said that there were fourteen Amish communities settled in in, in southern Illinois. So I know that the land, uh, the quest for land, and and I've seen around me, I've noticed the last few years, there are just so many places springing up just across the road from me. There have been two places built, um, you know, when people have their own families and and move out and start their own lives. So I'd say, I'd say, so de- depending on depending on how much business uh, an Amish community does with their their outside neighbors. Uh, d- depends on kind of how well they they thrive. That's been my observation. There's mm-hmm. some uh, if people don't know this. Not all Amish, not all Amish communities believe the same thing. They have something called Odning, which is spelled O R D N U N G, um, and that's kind of their set of beliefs. And and each Amish community has its own set of beliefs. And even the districts, like the there's, I can't remember how many districts there are around here in central, in this community here, Douglas, uh, multi-Douglas, but they can have variance between the different districts, but they're generally pretty close in their oddening because they're neighbors um, and they're people that, you know, are have relatives and marry back and forth between all these districts. So they tend to be fairly close. But once you get beyond a particular community. Like for example, if you go out to like Holmes County, Ohio, there might be several different general oddings out there where some will be extremely conservative and some will not be so conservative. And some of the most conservative ones will have very little contact with non-Amish and they tend to have a harder time uh, making ends meet. The mm-hmm. ones here in Illinois, I think around the 50s, my dad said that they had they had 
they were not growing very much. They were kind of, you know, stagnant and they realized that if they wanted to survive, they would have to start doing business with the English as they call Mm -hmm. non-Amish people. And so um, once they did that, they started to really take off and there's some, they, they've, they, they keep splitting their districts because they basically have church in each other's homes every other week. And so once it gets too difficult to fit everybody in people's homes or barns or wherever they have a meeting place, they have to split the district and they have to uh, make new ones. And those are growing. They're rapidly increasing the the area in which they're settled. They're going way farther south and um, I think probably west, not so much east right now or north. But they are they're really um, they're doing well. And it's kind of an attractive lifestyle. I mean, it's not as high stress as some modern stuff. And there's some mm-hmm. things you probably don't like about it. But there's, but all in all, it's, I think it's a pretty good lifestyle. Not that I'm going to convert anytime soon, but um, <laughs> you know, they do pretty well. And I see, since I've been up here, I know in my, in my intro to, the, to this program, it says that I've um, lived here 30 years, but I'm, I've been spent seven decades in this area. And um, since I've been up in the southern end of the Amish community, I've seen this number of schools grow too, just as you know, their population increases, they've increased their, the number of schools. And, um, and well, the other thing too, is they used to actually send kids to public schools more. And I think they still do sometimes. But now that they have they have their own schools, um, and they are their private schools for the Amish, and they they'll they'll have them so that it's not difficult to get there with horse and buggy. So there'll there'll be several around here. Um, one of the nice things about having their own schools is they will generally have one day where they speak German in school, not <laughs> Amish, but German, because the dialect that they speak is actually a dialect from Alsace-Lorraine. Some people believe that the Amish um, language has just drifted from from German, but actually it, it had diverged from German a long time ago. However, they do use a German Bible, so they used to have to go to a German school, I think when they were around the eighth grade, um, and they would go and learn how to speak German so that they could they could read the Bible and they could understand you know the readings out of it and now they don't really, I don't think they have to do that because they have a day of German at school. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, so you and I, you and Stacy and I first met at the barn raising that was at the Illinois Amish Heritage Center last year, last fall. And we discussed, mm-hmm. we, when we met you, uh, we found out that we knew your son, Andrew, had we met him at from the when he worked at the Upper Bout um, Music Store up in Champaign, there's a little plug for the Upper Bout. <laughs> but um, yeah, and what we, a nice um, store. it is Ricky's a good man, Ricky Bright. But we that's how we met you, and I've followed the progress that has happened um, at the Illinois Amish Heritage Center from the day they moved the the houses from behind Yoder's with the team of Belgians. And I know many, many, many other people have. And I think it's just a wonderful thing. I know it's Wilmer Otto's passion and and um, many other people, a lot of volunteers there. 
How did you get involved in that? And um, why do you think it is so important to preserve this, the heritage and to enlighten people about uh, the mysteries and misconceptions about the Amish? There's a lot of questions in that one. (laughs) Well, I was looking for, I was looking to tie in, I was going to have a, a saga, the Swiss Anabaptist Genealogy Association, an annual meeting here in our call, and I wanted to talk to them about um, perhaps, you know, tying into the Amish Heritage Center into our annual meeting with a tour or something like that. And when I, I called, then Wilmer said, well, you know what? We need somebody to um, head up our, our sheep shearing uh, spring activity. And so I said, oh, okay, I'll do that because I, I do, I do some, some other events. I've led some events. So that's kind of how I got started there. But as far as history and genealogy, there's a couple things going on there at the Heritage Center. One of the primary things is that, that we see things slipping away from us. We see old buildings getting torn down. We see old artifacts getting kind of um, mislaid or discarded. And, and we want to you know, it's that desire to preserve things before they're gone forever, you know, and try to preserve them for future generations and to let them know what they were for, what they were like, and, um, you know, preserve some of the history. Because there's a lot of things that people just take as common knowledge. Nobody is ever going to forget that. They will never forget that there was a store on that corner, or this is the way people used to dress, or these are the old customs, or things like that. Unless somebody writes them down or preserves them, and you know, as I'm getting older, I, I see lots of things, lots of interesting knowledge and facts just disappearing because mm-hmm. it's not preserved. And so people like me want to go and collect these things and, and make them interesting to uh, newer generations. The other mm-hmm. thing about the Heritage Center is it's not just about the history, but it is also about current Amish culture um, and I find that people that come to the Heritage Center are probably more interested in just Amish culture than they are at the history part of it. But I think the Mm. history part of it is really what got started. It is quite a fascinating place. I go every chance I get when you have an event there. Um, And I I see such a wide variety of people there, different different cultures. Yeah, we had – we just – just this last weekend, we had a sheep shearing uh, activity there where we, you know, from sheep to yarn to quilts, where we're actually shearing sheep and washing the wool and dyeing the wool. And we had some, a couple come from Chicago and bring their kids. They say, well, you know, how did you find out about this? And they said, well, we were just Googled sheep shearing. And this is the only place that came up where we could go actually go see it. So I'm, you know, I don't know that they were, they cared about the Amish as much. They probably enjoyed that, but they really wanted to see some sheep getting shared. We had some alpacas for them too, so that was pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was uh, Wilbur told me to go out and see the alpacas, and and we did. It was it was wonderful to be inside that barn that we got to see being erected last year, and to see to see the joining of the of the new uh, materials with the old original barn wood and to see those wooden pegs. Uh, just, uh, it, it makes me emotional. I don't, I don't have a connection to it. So, 
there's so much history that's gone on in those walls and you know you want to see the old structures there's so many of those things that are just r rotting and falling in and it's it's wonderful to be able to preserve something that old to see how it was originally put together and that's that's what we want to do and some of that history is going to be it's going to be common to all people uh, but i think a lot of times though when you see amish architecture it reflects not just what what was here at the time but also what the buildings were like from the places they came from, even going all the way back to Switzerland. Hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that and the the uh, craftsmanship of those buildings to be able to have withstood all these years, um, that, that in and of itself to me is uh, very amazing. And the work that has been done to preserve and delve into finding like the original paint colors and the original... Um, what was used to make those pigments. I know they, they had researched that too. I, we talked to Tom Vance. He's also very, very involved out there, right, Tom? Yeah, he's our, Tom Vance is our, our real historian. I'm, I'm just kind of the amateur historian that reads a lot <laughs> and uh, nerds out about the Amish. Neither one of you give yourselves enough credit because I, I asked him to come on and speak about this, uh, about the Illinois Amish Heritage Center, and he's he's going to come on at a later date, but he's be more comfortable um, discussing you know Lincoln Log Cabin and and those areas. He said he's not an expert on the Amish, and I said um, he's every everyone's more of an expert than I am. And when I wanted to do this series, um, it was as much to learn about things for my own for my own sake as as well as to try to get rid of some of the so many common myths and misconceptions and. And the mysteries, even living in this area as long as I have, I, there are so many things I've learned just in this few episodes that we've already done. Um, what things do you find are the are the biggest misconceptions about the Amish or Mennonites that you have encountered? What's the some of the craziest things that you've heard? If you'd care to share the craziest things you've heard, or or the things that you think are most harmful? Um, I'm constantly surprised by crazy things. And, and I really haven't, I haven't heard that much um, crazy stuff about them. I, I hear about, I hear about secondhand. I know that whenever I'm asked questions about the Amish, one of the biggest questions is, you know, why do they not use electricity or why do they use electricity sometimes, but not other times? Hmm. And, and what I would say to that is that every Amish community has to dis what their I think what the real goal is is not to be worldly. Like when they first got started, they had prohibitions against wearing fancy buttons, or you know I, I think they still don't use zippers. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, and they they're kind of like people people kind of think well they're just being backwards and they like being backwards, but it's more about not being worldly, not getting caught up with with the image, you know, and most of the time when people go out in the world, they'll wear a t-shirt or a suit or, you know, it's all a big, it's all a costume um, meant to show their membership with a particular group or, you know, sometimes it's to show off. Sometimes it's to, you know, to flex in front of people, if you will. And hmm. the Amish are not about showing off or flexing. Although there's probably some Amish out there that have, little higher quality suits than others or a little more expensive horses and buggies and things like that. That's just 
kind of human nature to, to try to do that kind of stuff. And they notice that, but they, they specifically do not want to be caught up in, um, in a kind of a materialistic society where people are just acquiring things just to show off. Uh, mm. And, and so, and they, they also want to be apart. They want to be a group apart and not, not get pulled into things that they consider to be distractions. Uh, so they're, so they all get together. They have a bishop and they have ministers and they have deacons. The deacons kind of go out and, and make sure that people are following the rules. The ministers do the preaching. And I think, and I think bishops do too. The bishops are, they're also kind of the final say, the head leader of a particular church district. So each church district has its own bishop, ministers, and deacons. And they kind of get together and they discuss things. And when new things come along, they try to figure out, well, how, what's our position on this? And, for example, if they want to do business, they might, they'll have to have cash registers. So if you go to the country salvage store, you'll see that they have electric cash registers. They have credit card processing machines. They, they probably have some electricity, but they try to do things as much as possible without electricity. I've, I've noticed that more and more Amish around here are starting to do a little more solar, which is, I think is a great idea for them because it lessens their dependency on, um, on outside energy sources. That's not something that was easy to, to get done. I think that like in the old days, they wouldn't even let you have windmills uh, like <sighs> you know, maybe a century ago. But, you know, and so it's always, they're always changing. They're always evolving. And each Amish community, you know, for example, Holmes County, there's many different ones in Holmes County and there's one here. They all struggle with the same um, choices. But I, I'll yeah. add this story. Um, in, around, around 1850, for about 30 or 40 years, I, I think it was about the time frame there, the Amish were wrestling with things like, well, okay, why can't we have some of this new stuff? Why can't we dress a little differently? Why can't we, um, you know, be a little more modern or things like that? And so some of the Amish decided to be more liberal. For example, there was up near, I think, McLean County, up near uh, Peoria. There was That was one of the first Amish communities in Illinois. It's older than this one. And they decided to become more liberal. And within a few years, they, they, the minister, well, the ministers had all these talks where they argue with each other and they discuss things and they, they tried to get some, um, some solidarity and they couldn't. So some Amish communities became more liberal and the others stayed very conservative. The ones that became more liberal in no time became Mennonite. They were not even recognizably Amish. They stopped being Amish. And they, you know, so they kind of disappeared as Amish. Mm -hmm. And the ones that stayed kind of conservative and tried to, you know, remain apart from the world, if you will, they remained Amish. And they still are here mm -hmm. today. So that's kind of maybe supports their methodology here. So when they do things, if they decide, okay, you can have a phone, but you're, you won't have it inside your house You'll have it outside in a little phone booth so that you're not just going to be waiting for calls and yakking on the phone all day. Um, they'll allow things like that because they deem it necessary and it's a compromise. But, hmm. but I remember back in, 
in the fifties when, uh, when my, my, um, dad's, when my grandpa left the church, they had a, they had a bishop that let them have bikes. And I think they could have tractors. When he died, the deacon was kind of a hard nose. And he said, Nope, you're not, you can't have that anymore. And at that point, they, they sold all their stuff to a neighbor. They confessed their sins to the church, got right with the church, and then they transferred to a conservative Mennonite church. Because you can't, in, in, this, in this culture, you can't get crossways with the church and then just transfer to another church. You, if you want to be on decent standing, you really need to be on good terms before you transfer to another Anabaptist church. And so that's what huh. they did. But, but that, you know, then they all changed and now they all can ride bikes in this particular community. And Arthur, Arthur is fairly liberal Amish community, isn't it? In a sense. I would say, I would say, but even, even here, you know, you have, you have like a regular kind of old order Amish and then you have, <laughs> you have some more, um, there's another liberal uh, Amish, more liberal Amish faction than that. I can't, I think it might be the beachy Amish. They can have cars, but they still look pretty Amish. They might trim their beards a little shorter. So the old order Amish leave them kind of untrimmed. I remember <laughs> one of our neighbor's wives used to complain about, like, oh, I wish I could trim his beard, but he won't let me in this, you know, and it's like, well, <laughs> that's just the way the rules are. I, I think it's kind of an oxymoron so, for people to hear hear when they hear liberal Amish. It's kind of it sounds it's an oxy, oxymoron, but um, and it's not a liberal. I don't use the word liberal as in conservatives and liberals politically because the Amish aren't politically active for the most part, aren't they? They're not, are they? For the most the part, who- no, not not really. They don't they don't believe in really getting you know too involved in the government. Pretty much. I mean, they have, there's some exceptions. I mean, they, the Amish used to be, per, they don't believe in uh, going to war and doing the war stuff. And so back in the civil, back in the revolutionary war, they, some of them moved. One of the reasons why they moved out of some of their original areas in Lancaster County was the war was breathing down their neck and their guys were getting, you know, conscripted and things. And so they moved away from that. Um, and, and sometimes they would like in the civil war, they would pay to have, you know, other soldiers take their place. Uh, they caught a lot of heat back in, um, well, around the world war one and two. And so did my German. I've got some, on mom's side, I have some German ancestors actually from Germany. They're not Amish. And, um, you know, anybody German around those times were they were catching a lot of abuse the, they, there was a German church out in um, in Bourbon um, I used to belong to. It was a really cool church, United Church of Christ. You know, they used to be an old German church, and around World War One, I, I believe, they stopped doing their services in German because of that. Hmm. So the Amish then, they decided, you know what, we're kind of tired of, you know, every time the war comes along, getting picked on. So they actually banded together and lobbied con- Congress to label them as conscientious objectors. And I actually know uh, an ex-Amish or a conservative Mennonite guy that was drafted in the Vietnam War and then served as a medic as a conscientious objector. But that's part of the reason why that came along. So there would be some um, provisions made for people that did not believe in fighting. 
wars. What what is the if there is one big change that you have seen in the Arthur Amish community in your, your lifetime? What would it be, or could you pinpoint one one big thing? Probably the the big thing that I've seen in all society is cell phones. And so the Amish, you know, adults are not supposed to have cell phones. Uh, some of them do, I think, but the kids can before. The, and it's interesting to know, even though all the kids look Amish, you're not a member of the Amish church until I think you become, you know, 17 or 18. And then you join the Amish church. And once you join the Amish church, um, you know, if you, if you, you know, become Mennonite or something before you join the Amish church, that's a lot more acceptable than if you become Amish and then you leave the church and go someplace else, you know, that can get you, you know, they're not as strict about shunning people in this community, but in other communities, you'll be, you'll be shunned and ostracized for doing something like that. I mean, it's really, it's a pretty big deal, you know, to leave (laughs) that. So the cell phones before they, before they, become Amish, you know, they'll drive cars, they'll have little cell phones. Um, and actually once my dad was at an auction and he saw a very conservative Amish uh, person, he was from the Nebraska Amish out of Pennsylvania, one of the most, one of the most conservative communities around, whip out a cell phone out of his pocket, you know, and start talking about it right at that, right at that thing. So they, sometimes, you know, some of the members will kind of, you know, they'll, kind of bend the rules a little bit or, you know, fudge here and there and do things. Um, that's kind of human nature. Um, and there'll be people that kind of chafe at the rules a little bit. And then other people that are very hard nosed about it and, you know, get upset with some of the other members for, you know, kind of pushing the boundaries, I guess. I do see young people periodically going by on their bicycles or I'll meet them on the, meet them on the road and they're looking down at their cell phones. So, uh, that that does oh, yeah. happen too. So yeah. So uh, like you said, it is human nature, and um, you wonder how they. Well, I guess that's another reason if they have solar, they can they can use that to charge their phones sometimes. But um, I'm glad you mentioned solar earlier. That was something that people had asked me about. That it was it was some sometimes English people see that as uh, hip, hypocritical. They say, why can they not have electricity, but they have solar? So. I'm glad you did address that. They had generators even before that, and I'm glad to see it moving away from generators into solar because I think it's a it's a better investment for them, and um, maybe it's a little easier for people to spot. But on the other hand, they are they do their best to to live up to their principles, and you know they talk about things. They're very deliberate about it, whereas you don't see a lot of other groups be very deliberate about new things that come along and, and and make decisions. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? And I think you could make a good case that social media has caused a lot of ills in the world uh, and hurt a lot of kids. Uh, you know, I wish people would look at that as, as something that's not just a diversion, but something that really has the capacity to harm people in society. I agree. It's social media is definitely a, a double-edged sword all the way around, no matter how you look at it. Uh-huh. Um, There's some good things about it. I mean, you can find people that you haven't seen for a long time and reconnect. And uh, But, you know, pretty much anything that a human being can invent for the best reasons possible and be very useful, some nasty person can figure out a way to, to um, subvert it and make it a bad thing. 
That's just human nature. Very, very true. Very true. Well, Troy, this has just been wonderful. I'm, I'm pleased. Would you come back on and talk again sometime? Sure, if I, but I've, I've run out of things to say now. That's all I know right there. And I'll have to make some more stuff up for the next time, I guess. <laughs> well, this is, you know, I do appreciate you being here. Uh, it's just it's it's just a divine guidance, I guess, that we met and that we that we have known had known Andrew. And um, just a pleasure to have you on your wealth of knowledge. Well, thank you very much. And that's what I wanted to establish, establish this this series uh, first series of the of the show to uh, like I said to not not just enlighten me but enlighten others and you've certainly shown a light in a lot of areas we didn't realize and I thank you so much for being here and we'll see you again soon. You're sure welcome and and I'd say a topic for next time might be to talk about the divergence and the divergence of the Mennonites and the Amish and kind of the reintegration of them in many cases. That's something I don't think a lot of people know about, uh, but that, I'm a big fan of it. It's a, uh, that's kind of an interesting history in itself, but I would say, even though I'm not Mamish or Mennonite, um, I'm a huge fan. So um, I'm always here to, to put in a good word for them. Well, we appreciate it very much, Troy. Thank you so much. And I I want to thank uh, the listeners today that have joined. And if you like what you've heard today, please subscribe and like this channel. And we hope to see you back, have you back next for our next episode. Thank you so much. I'm your host, Wendy Fleming Dexter. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Life on the Illinois Prairie, the undercurrents of our American life. If you haven't yet, go ahead and subscribe to Life on the Illinois Prairie wherever you get your podcast. Stay tuned for more stories, interviews, and updates. I'm your host, Wendy Fleming Dexter. Until next time. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.